0: blog talk radio
1: hi welcome to teach me to talk with laura and kate i'm laura mines pediatric speech language pathologist and i'm hoping kate hensler will join us in the next few minutes she's not quite on here yet hope there's not Anything going horribly wrong that would prevent her from participating? I haven't heard from her, so here she is right now. Okay. Hello. Sorry I'm late. <laughs> That's okay. Just a little bit of a panic there. I'm glad everything's okay. I had a
0: baby shower to attend. I just made it home, so
1: I'm here. Aww. Well, good for you. I attended a wedding shower last night for my child. That's kind of... Great and scary and oh my gosh, all at the same time, but
0: kind of bizarre. Yeah, really. <laughs> this is uh, the neighbor girl Laura's growing up best friend um, is expecting, and so there I was at Nikki's baby shower, thinking, "Oh my, it's
1: happening." It, it is funny when your babies aren't babies anymore, you know. Yeah, and then they Yuck. have babies. <laughs> well, I'm hoping that's going to be a while away. We're Doing things yeah. the traditional way in the nice homes. They're getting married the old-fashioned way. So anyway, enough about that before I talk myself into a hole here. But that was fun <laughs> going to Tyler's shower, and it was great. And it's mostly his friends, and or he and Emery's friends. And it was in a nice home with the pool, and so it was just a really nice evening. And I got a great dress right before, so that was a lot of fun, too. I love new clothes. So there you go.
0: Well, Good.
1: What else is going on what in your you world? Well, what have you gone through so
0: far? Well, what have you gone oh, through sorry. so far on the show?
1: Nothing. I just was giving the introduction. Oh, I good. And I'm,
0: I'm not as <laughs> late as I feared. Well, this is Kate Hensler for anybody who's listening and hasn't figured it out yet.
1: Just in from the baby shower. <laughs> Developmental interventionist. <laughs> there you go. Uh, One thing I did want to talk about before we get going with our show topic tonight is uh, I've finalized the fall conference schedule for um, this year. And I've gotten tons of email about it all year long. So I'm hoping all those people are going to be able to join me in one of these three fabulous cities. I'll be in Atlanta on September 27th and September 28th. Columbus, Ohio on October 11th and 12th. And Chicago, or Naperville, outside Chicago, on October 25th and 26th, you can find out registration information about all of those events on my site at teachmetotalk.com. And the first day is um, Early Speech, Language Development, Taking Theory to the Floor, which is my updated, very popular conference, if I do say so myself. And that, um, it's new, we're some new footage, and I've changed some things, but it's Basically, um, still going to be the same great content, but with the new threshold spin. And then the second day is Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers, which is based on my new book that was just out in May. And um, that's going to be a great day, too. And I'm combing through hours and hours of videotape to get the most recent and best videotape examples, because I think it's, it's great to read about some of this stuff. Well, it's great to read it. And it's great to hear us talk about it every Sunday or whenever you happen to listen to the podcast. But to see the therapy clips, I think it just brings it all together. So that if I talk about a technique or a level with that book and then we show examples from three or four different kids, three or four different scenarios, but you're still using the same basic strategy, I think it makes it really, um, you know, it just becomes more, concrete, then you're seeing that example and you're getting to kind of watch it. And again, I think a lot of therapists don't uh, really sharpen their skills enough so that they aren't flustered by oh, this is a kid with autism, I can't do the same kinds of things that I would with a kid with Down syndrome or the kinds of things I would with a kid with cerebral palsy or the things I would with a late Tucker or the things I would with a kid who we don't know what the heck is going on with. And they don't think about treating what we really treat and with building uh, verbal imitation, it's expressive language development and so we're going to talk about when, you, why it's so important to nail your core strategies because once you own those strategies you can see a kid with anything and know what you're going to do and I think that again a lot of therapists flounder with that and get so caught up in you know not that every kid not different. I mean, they are individuals, but at the same time, you've got to really own those strategies so you know what you're doing without a doubt, regardless of what you see written on a piece of paper and regardless of how um, you, just have to, you just have to own your strategy. So I think that this conference is going to be great for that. I'm so excited about putting it together, and I think it's going to be fabulous. So I hope a lot of people will join me. And I did to mention but if you are planning on traveling to Atlanta or Columbus or Chicago, and I know some people are because they've already registered and because they've already sent me some emails, don't wait to register until the last minute because once the mailers go out to the local people that i have already been here, <laughs> don't mm-hmm. plan on having a lot of spots left. <laughs> so make your <laughs> travel plans early. Um, and I just wanted to put that little blurb out there because I do think especially the places that we're getting for with Atlanta and Columbus. Because I get tons of emails from people there all the time, come back, when are you coming back? So wanted to put that little reminder out there, anybody that might be traveling, make your plans early.
0: Well, and also for, Laura, your folks who aren't that close, I know you get emails from all over the country saying, when are you coming to New Jersey? When are you coming to Minnesota? When are you coming to whatever? Colorado. Yeah, Maybe someday, but right now you're in these three places, so those are easy. At least Atlanta and Chicago are kind of easy in, easy out places. And for those people who would like to see you, but you're not going to their neck of the woods, that would be a good time to get that scheduled and get it done. It would be. They won't regret it.
1: Oh, I hope not. I think conferences are always fun, and I do think just every every time I always end up coming back and telling you, oh, it's my favorite conference ever. You know, things do happen differently at every location, and I said this last week with the questions and just kind of your mix of people in the room and all that, so I think this fall is going to be great. I'm really, really excited about it, and I did want to mention I do not have a Louisville or a Kentucky date scheduled, but I am going to schedule that second day conference, that building verbal invitation for the hometown girls and (laughs) girls. Uh, for um, sometime in Louisville, probably uh, November, since our other dates are in September, October. Um, and I, I just wanted to mention that too. And Louisville's actually not a bad place to travel in and out of either. Uh, and especially once you get in the city, it's just not hard at all to uh, navigate. So I just wanted to mention that. Well, and I know we have lots of locals, When did you say you're um, doing that? There, but- probably November. We don't have the date. We decided to do that today. And so obviously you can't make your, um, you know, get your conference location booked on Sunday. Those salespeople don't work like we do seven days a week. So um, we'll be announcing that date, but I wanna, I did want to mention that. And I think that will be terrific as well for our local people.
0: I might have to do mine in Chicago. I think this year because I think the shopping. Well, Atlanta's good, but Chicago—that mm, might be the number one spot. I might have to do the Chicago trip.
1: Are you really? Well, there you go. Huh? I'll have to. Uh, I don't know. I'll have to put your put your name on the list, Kate.
0: Um, but don't be telling seat. anybody. I don't want any podcast <laughs> listeners wanting to chat, chat while I'm there. I do it strictly under the radar.
1: <laughs> I. You know anybody that's a podcast listener is going to know, and you know you're not able to sit and not say anything, so they'll be able to pick you out of that crowd. I, am completely I did confused.
0: pretty well the first time I went and you were presenting, but that was a long time ago, and I think more people are aware of the podcast now, so I don't know. I might have to go incognito or something.
1: <laughs> and in Louisville, <laughs> you know I can, I, well, I can't keep myself from saying, and Kate, yeah, what I is wrong? Yeah, know. You know? <laughs> You get this look of fear on your face when I do that, too. It's almost worth it. <laughs> yeah.
0: You're the public speaker of the two. That's for sure. Mine is simply a phone conversation. So that's all I do is You're phone so consult. Funny. You're so funny. Lauren, I don't you know if I don't think I got it. Did you, did you do Therapy
1: Tip of the Week this week? i we did not get therapy tip of the week done this week we I have a great topic. I'm going to do it on uh using farm animals because boy, aren't those darn farm animals fun for toddlers and popular and they all like them and it really i i can hardly ever think of a kid who doesn't think that hysterical if you present those materials in the right way. And because of where we live in Kentucky, especially uh, I saw a little guy this week who lives on a big farm, and he was telling me he doesn't have a ton of words. Well, well, he probably has uh, like 50 uh, to 75 words, but a lot of them were tractor words. Like he was telling me combine and uh, oh, gator my. because they have one of those little uh, – do you know what they call it? Do you know what a gator is? It's, you know, like a I don't know what a gator thing. is. Didn't mm-hmm. think would no. Johnny's really laughing now, and so when I brought out my tractors, and I knew he would like playing with the farm, but he was—he got so excited. I got to hear a lot of new words, and he taught me some words for you know machinery. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I've never done a therapy tip of the week about that. I'm going to do that this week. And we had so much going on uh, with the website and these conferences upcoming, and just you know, regular, managing, our product sales and things, that we did not get that done this week. But I'm hoping we'll double up and get one er- done early in the week and then one again later. So thanks for asking about that. I usually send oh, it I to like you when them. I get it done.
0: I know, and I either I thought I just spaced and missed it or it didn't get done. But I know you had a evaluation this week in addition to all of your other stuff. You're an out-of-town evaluation. Yeah. So yeah. lots of irons in the fire for you. I'm glad you're doing the conference. As usual, though.
1: yeah, I'm mm-hmm. I'm excited about the conference stuff too, but it does take a lot of planning. Those things, those events, just logistics. They don't just happen, yeah. No, and then too, for me, the fun part is just really getting the original conference updated, and I've spent quite a bit of time on that, and then getting the new conference really, you know, you have to get it approved to death before you can get. You know your ashes, CEUs and stuff. So just getting all of that paperwork done has been has been great. And I had a really phenomenal family from Ohio this week, and I think we're going to do some show topics related to that in the upcoming weeks. But um, it is always great how a family and a kid with a lot of challenges can really inspire you to kind of think about different ways to present information and things that we've never done before on the show, or maybe we have done, but it's been a while and I want to be sure that people are hearing me say. And for that family, the dad is the podcast listener, so that was kind of exciting. We never really think about that, I don't think. Um, No. So that was great. And, um, again, I think it's going to really um, generate some topics to talk about in the next few weeks, especially since tonight is the last series. This will be our segue to... um, for this topic that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, which is meeting a kid where he is. And so two weeks ago, we talked about how that relates to with selecting your goals and with um, teaching specific things like signs. And last week, we talked about it with meeting a kid where you all, where he is with play and with attention. And tonight, we're finishing up this focus with looking at how this relates to behavior. And every time I say the word behavior, I just want to say, ugh, right after it because, <laughs> oh, it's such a big topic, and it's certainly something that all of us as parents and as early interventionists think about and deal with. But let me just say this. I think so many fide, real, um, huge, important uh deficits really get lumped into behavior when you're looking at a kid. And I think a lot of times therapists and parents blame true developmental deficits or cast them off as, oh, that's just behavior, that's just behavior, that's just, uh, you know. And it gets cast into such a negative light where even sometimes, and i know that if you've worked for more than a week or two or if you've parented a child with who's a late talker for any number of reasons you've already heard this but a lot of people look at expressive language delays as something that a kid is purposefully holding out or something he won't talk versus he can't talk or she she just refuses to say anything versus she cannot pull together all those processes that she needs to be able to do, you know, the physiological part, the cognitive part, um, all of those things, the receptive language part. She cannot coordinate all those things together well enough to really be able to produce words consistently. And how many times, Kate, do people blame late talking on behavior?
0: Yeah. um, You know, I see parents do it a lot. Which um, is a little disturbing, but not nearly as disturbing as when I see therapists do it. And it does kind right. of seem to be kind of the go-to thing right now. We, you and I have been long, around long enough that you know we've kind of seen seen various things come in in favor and out of favor, right. and kind of the latest thing to focus on as you know as a profession. And right now, it does seem like that's kind of a, a go-to thing for a lot of therapists to kind of blame difficult sessions or difficult situations on quote-unquote behavior when right. I think if they were being um, very insightful they would have to say well the child has sensory issues and the child has attention issues and the child has receptive language issues and yes of course the child has expressive language issues and You know, when a child has all of those things that are affecting his or her development, um, a lot of times behavior is something that can be somewhat difficult, but rarely do I think is it really just a behavior problem. It's all of those factors negatively influencing his performance. (laughs) And sometimes parents, and it's it's so sad to hear therapists reduce things to that. Basically, well, he's just being bad, you know, and... And when Rarely that happens, I so want to say to a therapist,
1: that. well, then why are you there? If you're a speech mm-hmm. therapist and this is just about bad behavior, honey, they don't need you. They need yes. a behaviorist. They need, you know, a psychologist. They need, mm-hmm. you know, whatever discipline, you know, in your region happens to treat behavior. Okay, that's what they need then. If it's not about communication and about, um, delayed or receptive and expressive language, then you need to sign off. If you're in over your head, pass it on to somebody who can really handle the the brunt of the problem. And when you present it like that, a therapist always says, "Oh no, 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 he has communication problems too." And then you want to say, "Well, then what are you doing, focusing on behavior? What are, what are mm-hmm. you talking about then? You are there to treat the communication problems, and you know, and that's not to say that toddlers can't be stinkers because they can and we see that but so many times people just write off like what you said sensory issues you know they he won't sit down listen to me he's on to go constantly go 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 that's a sensory issue that's not a behavior issue and what were your other great examples you said Sensory, and then you got to receptive and expressive language last, but there was one in between there. What did you say? I said sensory issues, and cognitive
0: issues, and receptive and expressive language issues. I mean, they have all of them. You know, exactly. many of our kids have all of them, really.
1: Yeah, all of the above. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> most of our kids do. On our case, not all, but it's, most. Yeah, not the majority all. Majority of the but kids most. we see. Right. right. And so when we discount and think about everything as being behavior, the saddest thing to me is when a kid really has a receptive language issue that, that for whatever reason has been dismissed or been overlooked. And so many times you'll see a kid with receptive language issues really just get labeled as bad or a behavior problem or all mm-hmm. of, you know, again, all of those things. And sometimes it's the parent who does it You know, or they'll they'll say they'll put a temperament issue on there, like he's stubborn, or he's lazy. Yeah, he won't listen, and I just think it's not. He's very independent. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All those things. And I I just, when I hear those things, you know, because I know what's coming. You're going to really, you know, it almost. Again it's easier, and we have certainly talked about this to for a lot of parents to accept a behavior issue rather than a true developmental deficit and I think that's where a lot of it lies with with parents because the 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 ugly heartbreaking truth a lot of times is he's acting this way or he looks this way because they can't bear to face the reality that there is something really, really um wrong for lack of a better word with how a child is developing. And so it's somehow easier just to say he's a handful or, you know, even mm-hmm. more negative than that, he's you know, he's just
0: like his father
1: or something. <laughs> You know, rather than looking at the reality that they're dealing with a pretty significant developmental delay. But when you can get a parent's mind changed and when you can help them see, okay, it's not that he's jumping on the couch, you know, just to irritate you. It's not that he's jumping on the couch because he, you know, thinks, ooh, what can I do to really set my mom off today? you know, you when you talk about he's jumping on the couch because he has those sensory issues that he's got to meet that. That's his little internal drive there. And these are the ways we were going to do it. Or he's jumping on the couch because he doesn't understand when you've said to him, please stop jumping on the couch. You're really making mommy upset when you're not listening to my words. I need you to listen to my words. You know, he gets <laughs> lost in all of that language. And when you teach a mom to really look at, okay, this is a receptive language issue. You're not seeing a behavior issue here. Things really change because the parents then try to help the kid, and they try to use what we would say a strategy, which would be to simplify your language, to give some really clear and consistent boundaries, to really meet him where he is, where he can understand you at at a and developmentally you're also going to um meet him where he is developmentally and, you, and cater to his where he is in that whole <laughs> cognitive development uh scheme there so that you're not using disciplinary techniques designed for children who are developmentally older than your child which happens a lot for us in early intervention. You know, a parent might try to say, okay, it's two and a half, so gosh, I read this cool article on the Internet that said once you're over two, you can use time out with a kid. And so they start to take a kid who's chronologically 30 months but who developmentally might be 12 months or 15 months or 18 months and then try to apply a disciplinary strategy for an older child without realizing he's just not there yet. You can't. The reason he doesn't understand time out is he's still much, much, much more like a baby or more like a young toddler than, you know, a kid who's almost three. And so when you can help a parent see that and explain, okay, this is why we're seeing what we're seeing, when a parent really, again, embraces that, huge things can happen for children. I mean, developmentally, they're going to move forward because you meet them where they are, and you're going to use the techniques and strategies that we know are appropriate for whatever phase a kid happens to be in. And secondly, they just end up being much more um, empathetic to their child's um, situation so that it's not a constant power struggle and so many times we see that, and, it's, and when we can turn a parent's focus back to what the developmental issues are, and they are much, much, much more likely to keep things positive and to, again, meet the child where he is so that they can both move forward. And it's just not so darn hard or adversarial all the time. A lot of times I think parents get really caught up in that too. And that's easy to do. I mean, as a mom, how many times... Can you get lose your cool in the course of the day over what your kids do that are that's driving you crazy? But when you really take a step back and look at um, what's causing those behaviors, what's you know where your kid is, it just makes it a lot easier to deal with. I think to think about it objectively, but boy, that's hard to do in the middle of a situation, don't you think?
0: Definitely definitely is difficult but i do think a lot of times there's a huge sensory component to the behaviors and when parents get some instruction and insight into that and begin to do what the kid needs anyway you know what i mean it's not quite the issue that it is before they're aware of it let's put it's always probably or for quite some time it may well be an issue there's no magic wand unfortunately that you wave and then you don't have the sensory issues but when parents kind of get it then they right. know the underlying reasons kids do things and what they can do to help their kids slow down when they need them to and to offer them that movement and that stimulation that they're going to get anyway. And better to offer it and get it in some kind of controlled environment than swinging from your chandelier or doing a backflip off of your couch. So
1: <laughs> Right. <laughs> I know. And so when you look at when I read things from other disciplines like um, physicians or psychologists or whoever it might be, when they're looking at behavior, first of all, they rarely are looking for a child with developmental delays. And a lot of times parents don't really realize that. And so therapists, we really have to talk to parents about that and whatever strategies they're using or whatever book they've read or we need to make sure that we're helping them take a step back. You know, I've gone as far as for a lot of parents, you know, we, um, well, let's see how to say this. I have gotten lots and lots more and lots children whose parents are really committed Christians. And because of that, they've done a lot of parenting classes at church. And because of that, they... And they, it's so important for them. Obedience is a big concept for them and a big, and an authority um, because of their beliefs and their commitments. And I understand that, but so many times they'll go to these parenting classes. And when truth, some of the things that the, they're talking about in the parenting class, if I went back and looked at the manual, they would be for older children to start with. But then, add on that a developmental delay whether it's you know just communication or it's communication plus sensory or communication plus sensory plus cognition you know add all of that together and there's no way they should be trying to apply that child rearing method or whatever you want to call it to their own little boy or girl. And I've had to really talk to lots of parents about that. Boy, have we had conversations about that over the years, Kate. (laughs) Yes, we (laughs) have. Yeah, where I'm saying, I understand this and I respect your beliefs and I understand what you're trying to do and how you want your home to be. And I get that this is not realistic for you, and this is not realistic for, all your chi- for your child. And it may be realistic for your other two older children and maybe the baby who's coming up behind him, but for this little boy, for this period of his life, this is not going to be a good strategy, and here's why. And again, I have I have had a lot of parents that we've had to have some really heart-to-heart-to-heart conversations about that, because they don't understand it and because a lot of those parenting um manuals and, and books and all those things are not written for children with developmental delays. And so you or autism or you know, Down syndrome or, you know babies who are really premature that have a whole a lot of issues going on you know they're not written for parents of those kids so i you know what i i want to just take them away with me when i leave from the visit i want to say let me wipe your brain clean real quick (laughs) before i get out of here because you've gotten some really bad information as it applies to your particular child and so i think we have to have those hard conversations with parents and say that and you can still do it in a respectful way and you can still do it where they don't Hate your guts, you know, before you leave. But there, and, and a lot. I know a lot of therapists will shy away from that because they would say, you know, that's a peer issue or that's a whatever. Um, you know, I'm not going to talk about that because that's their religion. But you have to work it in the best way that you can, so that they understand their child's challenges and they understand where the kid is developmentally and what that, how that affects every single thing that uh, they might want to do with their kid. And I've got so many personal examples that I could use with that, but, um, you know, that that's a big one is, is where parents are you're doing their best. They're trying really hard to raise good kids, but they're just applying methods that aren't appropriate for a two-year-old with developmental delays. Does that make sense how I'm saying that? Is there a better way to say that?
0: Uh, no, it makes perfect sense to me. And I do think that although these some of these programs, they do a great job with most kids, um, for kids with developmental delays, it just really isn't appropriate at that time and may not be appropriate for quite some time, really. You know, not that they don't right. need rules and restrictions and limitations and all of those things, they certainly do. But those Programs tend to assume that every two-year-old is like every other two-year-old, and they all understand X amount. And the truth is, they don't. So
1: right, right. When they and don't, so we, um, parents need to understand that they do. And that takes hearing it from a therapist. And and but you hit the nail on the head when you said it's not that there still don't need rules and expectations and boundaries, just how you enforce those things and how you apply those uh, methods, you know, it might be different. And let's talk about a couple of those, and I want to be sure that I get to these other great references that I have for people. Um, and I mentioned timeout before, and, you know, timeout is so universally um, recognized as a behavior method. And, it, you know, it, the, the intent of timeout is so that a child is removed from the situation and everybody just has a chance to calm down. Sometimes it's the parent who needs to come out worse than the kid, though. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, it's the mom who's screaming her head off and going berserk, and, you know, then that just escalates everything because then the kid, if he's not in full-blown tantrum mode anyway, he will. And, boy, I mean, I hate that, too. I've shared before my auditory sensitivities when the kid is crying and screaming. Oh, to me that's like, you know, running fingernails down a chalkboard for someone else. It's really, I mean, that just is a real sensory trigger for me. And so I get when parents, you know, feel that way, and I sympathize with that. You know, your heart starts racing and you're sweating and you're thinking, what am I going to do? I'm, You know, and a lot of times that whole feeling of helplessness is really directed to your kid. And so timeout is valuable because it causes you to step back. You can't always apply timeout, though, with those rules that, you know, they came up with. And now timeout's pretty old now, like 20 years old, but you know the minute per age, you know, per the minute per year of age, that doesn't always work. And so you have to help parents see that. And timeout really too is only appropriate for children who are developmentally above uh, two. So for a kid on your caseload that you've you know done an assessment and he's coming in at the 12 month level and then mom is trying to do time out with him, it doesn't matter how old he is or, you know, as I say, how many candles are on the birthday cake, because if he's developmentally not there, it's not an appropriate technique to use. Um, so you're going to want to really talk to moms about, you know, under, when a kid is under, say, 24 months of age, redirection is the biggest thing you can do. And a lot of parents really hate that because they say, how's he ever going to learn? How's he ever going to know right from wrong? You know, and I'm not saying that you don't ever tell a kid no or that you don't have established limits. I'm just saying that redirection is your best bet. And redirection means if you don't want him to touch the remote control, you don't leave it on the coffee table. You know, if you don't want him to play with grandma's, you know, china that she got for her wedding present, you don't leave it in the bottom cabinet of the kitchen where they can get it out. And a a lot of those common sense things, parents, again, they're they're thinking, I'm going to teach him right from wrong, he's going to have to respect my rules, I am the boss, yada, yada, yada. If he's not old enough to really under developmentally far enough along to really understand that, you know, you can spank hands until the cows come home or you can, uh, you know, put him in his bed or you know, whatever little technique. But if he, if he's not really able to reason and kind of get that yet, he's just not there. And so you've got to manipulate his environment or redirect enough so that he's not constantly in trouble. And then I try to talk to parents about that and say, how do you feel when you're getting onto him all the time? Wouldn't it just be easier <laughs> to change something so that you guys don't have to spend, you know, eight hours of your day, correcting things, and, you know, that's taking up a lot of time when you you both could be using it to do something else. And, again, I think that's kind of a personality thing. Some moms really kind of think, oh, my gosh, that makes total sense. I'm going to, we're going to look at this. Let me rearrange things where this is not so much of an issue. But, again, some moms have that temperament where that's a little hard for them to swallow. Dads really sometimes have a hard time with that, don't they?
0: Mhm. They tend to be sometimes more the disciplinarian than the mother, but yeah, it's, you know, it's a long day when all you're doing is fighting your kid because they go from one forbidden thing to another. And certainly not all kids do that, but for those kids who do and they just don't seem to understand that you've told them no a hundred times, fact is, they probably don't understand. They don't. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Really? They don't. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, sometimes I think parents think, well, i said it so many times, he's got to know. And I think, mm, I think if he really knew, he probably wouldn't do it. You know, That's over thinking, and over too. and yeah. over and over again. Yeah. And they just assume because they've said it so many times and the child's been told so many times that the kid's just being difficult. And I, more often than not, the vast majority of kids seem to have some internal drive to do it. And that's kind of what I was talking about, you know, looking at their sensory profile and coming mm-hmm. up with what what acceptable behavior would meet the same need for the kid. Because there usually is one, you know. I mean, there's usually yeah. something the kid could do in lieu of those what appear to be negative behaviors. You know, climbing on furniture they're not supposed to be on, Um, You know, smashing into TVs that they're not even supposed to touch. I mean, some kids spend a lot of their waking hour doing things that are pretty destructive and what appear to be pretty negative. And I just think, hmm, they're dancing to the beat of a different drummer. We've got to figure out what he can do that is acceptable. Right.
1: And I've had moms say things like, you know, he's tearing up the pages to paper books, and then, you know, my response is, well, guess what? He's not ready for paper books. You need to have cardboard books. Or a mom that might say, he's constantly in my purse, or he's, you know, you you look for what is it about that? Is he it, is it in your purse because he likes to dump things out and put things back in? Great, we can come up with that. Let's go in the kitchen and put together a big bowl of things that he can dump in and dump out. If you like the bag part, go get a bag out of your closet. You know, you have 10 or 15 that are just sitting in there. (laughs) Let's make one for them. (laughs) I had a little guy a few months ago who was really trying to get all the DVDs from under his uh, mom's television. And so he liked the cases a lot. And so we talked about, I get, I, uh, while I was there, said, let's, do you have any empty DVD cases that it would be okay for him to play with this? You know, can we look for a DVD, you know, if it's because he's, you know, the sensory property really likes this whole shiny part, if that's what's doing it for him, let's get him a DVD that it doesn't matter and let's let him have those. And those are his and those are the ones that you have where he can reach them. And the other things we just have to put out of the way for a while because he's just, he's not there yet. He doesn't understand it. And you can spank him with a wooden spoon all day long. (laughs) But if he really wants those things, he's going to still get them. And so, you know, you have to really, again, as a therapist, walk parents through that process and help them find acceptable solutions and, you know, and to me, again, I say this every week on the show, that's what makes this job fun. It's that whole detective, you know, let me figure out what could be going on here and let's see if we can replace that or redirect that or come up with some other alternative to that. I wanted to get back to when I the example that I used a second ago too when the kid's jumping on the couch and your mom goes into her whole paragraph long explanation about why she you you can't jump on the couch and how that hurts mommy's feelings and you know then she goes into things that a even a normal two year old would have no idea of what she's even talking about and so we want to be sure especially with our children that we know that have had receptive language and cognitive delays that we are not giving so many verbal directions or verbal redirections that they don't know what you mean in there. I love uh, Dr. Harvey Karp, who wrote um, Happy Baby on the Block. Do you remember that book, Kate? It's about the five it's about swaddling and swinging and all those things that you do with newborns to help them regulate, for lack of a better word. But really, he approaches it from sleeping and not crying. You know, for six mm-hmm. hours out of the seven that they're awake. And so that he wrote that book. And then he wrote Happiest Toddler on the Block. And admittedly, I've not gotten through that whole book. But what I really like that he talks about with discipline is he says that you cannot over-explain things to two-year-olds or to toddlers and that you have to really, when something is huge and when something is a really big deal – that you um, really simplify your language. Now he says, and again, these are his words, not mine, so I don't want anybody to be offended by this. But he says, when you're relating to a two-year-old like that, you have to use what he calls his caveman language. And he says, that would be that you're going to be really abrupt and firm, and let them, and not say a lot of dialogue. That you would say something like, "No." no biting, and get a really um, stern look on your face and firm mannerism. And after you've corrected that, then you let it go. And I like that because, it, first of all, you're addressing the behavior. You're not, you know, letting a two-year-old think it's okay to bite the baby or, you know, do whatever is unforgivable in your home. You're not doing that, you're addressing it, but you're also speaking in a way that is different from any other time you're going to talk to your child. You're getting their attention. You're not doing anything that's um, overly physical. And they get the point because you're not crowding out your main message with lots of other blah, 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 blah. So I like that with the whole... Only do it when it really matters. Make it firm. Make it short. And then the best part is move on after that. Because how many times when does a kid gets in trouble, do you still see a mom mad about it two or three hours later? And, you know, the kid has long forgotten about it, but mom is still kind of steaming over it, you know, and kind of wait till your father gets home, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and you you want the big thing is redirect it, move on to something happier, and let it go after that, not let it be kind of the constant, "Ah, ah, ah, ah," because it totally wears down on the kid out on you. So I like that piece of advice um, that he gives. um, And, again, he calls it the whole caveman disciplinary thing. not quite sure I love that title, but it's a great um, representation of getting your child's attention, letting them know it's important, simplifying your language, and then moving on after that.
0: And I do think sometimes, I mean, I, I'm not saying it's the only contributing factor, but sometimes kids do tend to mind their fathers a little better. And I do think it's because dads tend to naturally take that approach, yeah, um, kind of the caveman approach. And, again, I'm not using that terminology, but, uh, you know, I mean, yeah. they tend to yeah. be, more forceful, they're not as wordsy, they say what they mean, they say it quickly, and kids right. respond to that as opposed right. to a lot of times we mothers tend to drone on about, wow. I've told you ten times, I don't climb on the table, you need to stay on the floor, mommy told you, blah, blah, blah,
1: blah, 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 blah.
0: And meanwhile, right. they've tuned us out and they didn't even get the part about, the beat. no. You know? <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. And whereas dad might come in and say, no, off that table, and Put him on the floor. Put him down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they look up at Daddy like, oh, my gosh, I'm in trouble. And then they move on, like, let me scamper away and find something else that I'm not going to get that response from. And that's Dr. Cox's point with keeping it short, keeping it meaningful, making it pretty abrupt and pretty firm so that it disrupts that whole pattern of behavior you want to disrupt, and then you move on. So I like this slide. One other thing that I wanted to talk about is what Lynn Kinney says and she's a psychologist, she's with her website is called braininsights.com and she says that lots of times that we do mislabel developmental deficits as behavior. And so you she has developed a set of criteria that you would apply to the situation to decide if a child is misbehaving or if this is a skill deficit. And I love this criteria, and we've done this on the show before, but I think it's been a really long time, don't you? Do you vaguely remember this? Vaguely. <laughs> Give it to me you again. It? Maybe it'll you always stick always the truth. Around. There you go. She <laughs> says with anything, any kind of, and again, this is whether you're giving a verbal instruction, you know, whatever your issue is that has fallen into the realm of behavior in your mind. She says first, have to think, have I clearly communicated the behavioral expectation? And she gives great examples on her website of this, but you know, she's saying, if you have said, if you have not explicitly told your child what he's supposed to do, you can't always expect compliance because sometimes kids really don't know what it is you're expecting them to do. So she says, have you clearly communicated the behavioral expectations? And so that would be number one. The second strategy is, does the child have the skill to exhibit the expected behavior, meaning that we're going to look at where he is developmentally. You know, we would never expect a kid to tie his shoes before he has demonstrated that he actually can perform the movement. And so she's saying, if you have not seen the child exhibit the skill and you do not know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he can do it, don't expect it. And a lot of times that is what's happening with our kids with receptive language delays. Their parents expect them to understand their verbal directions, and they don't understand that many words yet. They don't. language isn't as meaningful to them as the parent expects it to be. And I love what you said about even though you've told them a 100 times, guess what? On the 99th time, they still didn't understand it. And so you have to be sure that the child has the capability and has the skill. Now, again, with a lot of our children with developmental delays, how many times do we go into homes where the only deficit that the parents have identified is that the child is not talking? That's all that they have seen or noticed and then when we look at a child clinically we see oh my goodness words aren't meaningful yet he's got a pretty big receptive language delay sometimes that cognition is piece there piece is there as well you know and mo- again for most of our kids with the receptive language delays cognition is usually right there at that same level and so the parents haven't really even considered that that's a possibility and again they've certainly haven't thought about the sensory things or those other components that we've talked about. And so if you're telling a child something like, you know, you better not touch that or you're going to really get it this time. They have no idea of what you're even talking about. You haven't even referenced it. And if, if you were clearer, they may still not have understood it. So you have to make sure that the child has the skill to be able to do what you want him to do. So, whatever that behavioral expectation is. The third one is so important, and it's something that we have not talked about yet, but boy, it's a factor that I think people miss with toddlers and with young children all the time. In this time and place, and under these specific circumstances, is the child able to exhibit the behavior? And so many times we do not think about with the kid is he hungry? Is he thirsty? Does he have a, you know, a sensory issue that's making that dirty diaper or wet diaper really irritating to him? Is he sleepy? Is he sick? And so, um, you know, are those teeth coming in again? And again, I hate it when I blame everything in toddlerhood on teething. You know, I'm not saying go that route, but I'm just saying that when we really think about if it's when a kid is falling apart and having tantrum after tantrum after tantrum. In the course of a day, a lot of times it's because the physical needs have not been met. And again, sometimes, um, sometimes moms really miss that. You know, we've talked before about, you know, we'll go in and pick up a kid and he's burning up, and we'll say to mom, "I think he has a fever." And mom might, well, "No, no, he doesn't." You're like, "Come over here and touch him. Touch him. He's, he's burning up." up. <laughs> Has, has he been on today? Has he been the same? No, he just kind of laid here and TV all day. I thought he was just being really good. You know, when you want to go, he's
0: sick.
1: <laughs> so, and a lot of even obvious signs of illness sometimes moms will miss. I mean, a kid's nose can be pouring out green. And I'll say, oh, my gosh, is he sick? You know, thinking it's a rhetorical question. She's like, no. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Look at his face. What is that then? <laughs> That's why. I'm Christ. You know, so we have to really think about that in terms of behavior with kids too. You know, you think, when's the last time I fed this kid? And a lot of times I'll ask mom that. You know, if they're cranky and she might say, oh, well, you know, he didn't eat a lot of breakfast. And actually he was up like, you know, 32 times during the night. And I think, well, no wonder. Why are we even trying to do speech right now, then? You know, that, this is a physical need that has to be met. And, uh, you know, we're laughing about it. We're joking about it. It's not funny when it happens. And a lot of times that those things are overlooked by parents. And just because we can go several hours, you know, without a meal or a drink or whatever, it doesn't necessarily mean our kids can. And sometimes, too, parents get children that are on totally different kind of clocks than they are. And so they don't really think about meeting all those physical needs. You know, they thought about it maybe better when kids were babies, but then as children have gotten older, they've just kind of forgotten that we still have to physically meet those needs for um, our youngest clients. So we need to be sure that we're always talking to moms about, about that. Now, I'm not one to blame every little thing on that, but at the same time I think those things go overlooked, don't you?
0: I do, and especially for kids who don't necessarily even have the skills to request something to drink or something to eat. Right. You know, they may get kind yeah. of distracted and busy and they don't necessarily have the skills to say drink or even take mommy to the fridge and look at it as if to say, hey, it's right. like a drink. So right. those kids can be kind of easy to forget those things
1: because they're not even really requesting them. right. Right, and sometimes moms, and again, as I'm not trying to be derogatory about any mom and any mom's kind of strengths or weaknesses, but a lot of times we as therapists, we have to help moms think about those things. And, um, you know, a lot of times moms just, what I'm trying to say is may not have as many of those natural instincts as we would want them to have and to be able to <laughs> rule those things out as a first line of defense. You know, the first time a topic is cranky, you know, with me, I'm thinking, where's the snack bag? I'm going to feed him. You know, that makes me feel better. <laughs> I bet he'll feel better with a goldfish, too. Um, or, you know, if he's really you know, looking like uh I don't know, you could take any number of examples, but a times, you know, I will think about that physical stuff first, like I'm going to meet these needs first, and sometimes, again, I think I'm thinking of that before mom is, and some of that I do think it's because I've done this job for what feels like forever now, and those things are just part of what I would do with kids, but more importantly, they were what I would do with my own children. And thinking about, you know, why could he be cranky? When it's it's 11.30 and he hasn't had anything since breakfast. Um, so you do want to be sure that you are looking at a child's behavior with those physical factors in mind. Um, I used to joke about this a lot when our kids were little. Sometimes I would take them to the doctor like the very first minute I thought they were sick, you know, and this is when they were really little because, you know, now as big as my kids are, you pretty much have to be sick three or four days before the doctor, but for this is when they're really little. Um, I would almost take them before they had uh, ran of fever or had a lot of symptoms, you know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. the next day they would be really sick, and I would think, especially if I had a pediatrician who wasn't as responsive and didn't know me well enough to really listen to me yet, you know, you really say, "Gosh, something's off here. I think he's getting sick. Let's you know, check his ears. Let's look at his throat." And sometimes I would think, "Boy, I should have waited a day because his symptoms—he we would have gotten better medicine if I had waited a day because he's really sick today." Yeah, but that's my my context is you've got to pay attention to these physical things that could be going on and treat those, for lack of a better word, take care of those before you're looking at all this behavior stuff. I wanted to end the show, too, with a really kind of glaring example. And this is why we did this whole series of shows. Is because I got this email from a therapist several weeks ago now. I guess it's probably been more than a month now. And she said, she starts off her email, I'm not going to read it because she asked me not to share private things so that she would be easily identified. But she said um, a kid that she had been seeing ended up with a diagnosis that's progressive in nature, meaning that over time she would lose skills. Well, there had to have been delays there anyway, otherwise why would she have been on someone's caseload for a long time. And she said that she wanted to know how to handle this situation with this little girl now because she didn't feel like working on language that she would still be as effective. And she went on to say, like, right now this is what we do we we all have agreed on her therapy team and uh, to implement her behavior plan and part of the behavior plan for speech was they would put her in her high chair, let her cry for a minute or two, which she said that's all she did, and then she would move on to working with her and doing therapy. You know, and again I could probably spend a whole hour talking about those two or three whole sentences that I've just said <laughs> About why I don't know that that would ever be a good idea for treating a child, but certainly, in this case her her question was, in light of this new diagnostic information should you know I don't feel really good about that with making her so unhappy, what would you do and you know my response, of course was throw that behavior plan out the window and have a good time with her. And she said in her email, to her credit, should I just pretty much play with her and work in language however I can? And I think that's what I do with every kid. So that's that's what I think you should do now, especially with a little girl who you know is, um, and I'm again, this particular disease, or uh, condition, you know, children don't live very long. You know, they don't make it to adulthood. And so in that situation, think, well, then why are we going to make her unhappy even one minute? And so it just so clearly illustrated to me the whole behavior thing and how we really, 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 have to meet kids where they are. And and from every perspective, and over the last several weeks we've, you know, talked about that, looking at that when you're determining goals. If you have a child who's chronologically three, you don't look at what the three-year-old skills are that you should be targeting. You back way up to where they are, and you look at those goals and those milestones, and that's where you start with the kid. You meet them where they are. When we were talking about it with play and with attention last week, if your goal is for him to sit with you and play for, you know, 10 minutes, but he can only stay with you for 20 seconds, you can't have, you, you're you not going to meet that 10-minute goal this week. You've got to meet him where he is and work up to that over time. And the same thing with behavior. You've got to look at where that kid is cognitively and with receptive language decide what strategies are appropriate based on where the kid is, not where you want him to be, not with what his chronological age says he should be able to do, not what the quote-unquote expert who knows nothing about your child said to do. You've got to meet him where they are and, and look at that, and behavior is what's Started this whole little series, and we talk about meet a kid where he is all the time and apply it to everything, and I, I think we should, but behavior is where it really, 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 really makes the most sense to me. So I'm glad you to you. know, Laura, I, this, is,
0: this is related, but not exactly on topic, but I think the one that I find most um Surprising, I guess, is when parents of children, and we said up front that most of the kids on our caseload, they're not just, it's not just an expressive language delay, although a lot of parents, that's what they focus on and that's what they're aware of and that's why they seek help because their child isn't talking. And then upon further evaluation, it's revealed that, you know, there may be receptive problems, there may be cognitive issues, there may be. Uh, sensory issues, whatever. A lot of times there are, uh, there's a full complement of issues to one degree or another. But occasionally we get kids who really are just expressive, have an expressive language delay, and that's mm-hmm. to say that their cognitive skills are pretty typical and their receptive language skills are pretty typical and they don't have more than your average kid's sensory needs. They're just kind right. of a late talker. And a lot of times even parents of those children say, he could talk he just doesn't want to. And right. you and I have joked about that a lot over the years saying, you know, right. in in our world kids talk when they can. You can right. be difficult and still talk. You can be, yeah. you know, you can have behavioral issues and you still talk. Yeah, I don't I think really some
1: think of those 2-year-olds I mean, not necessarily on that case play, but you know, in other in community settings, yeah, they're talking a blue streak and being nasty all at the same time, yeah, yeah. hmm. <laughs> it doesn't really uh, preclude talking, and sometimes I'll have
0: those parents even say, and, and you know, a lot of times, really, it's with like the apraxic kids who every once in a while will pop out a word, right? And they think because he said stop that one time he could say it if he wanted to and it's like mm, well i think he'd say it again if he could you know if he could yeah yeah <laughs> he would choose to or i want that cup or i don't want milk i want juice or you know one time he popped out i want juice and they think that he can say it cuz he said it once and i always think that's you know very sad that parents are misinterpreting that they really can't because if they could they would
1: they would they would, and mm-hmm. I tell parents all the time when you get a kid developmentally to the point that words make sense that he physiologically you know not that can can produce sound and produce words when you socially when he's in tune with you and he gets oh my goodness, my life is going to be easier if I connect with you and communicate with you when when a kid comes together like that, he talks. And so mm-hmm. you have to really do a good job of explaining those components and explaining all the things that have to come together before a kid can talk because a lot of times parents are missing what you think is glaringly obvious. And, again, that go, that oh, gosh, I want to say so much about this, but I'm not because we're at the end of the hour. But, you know, you have to tell parents what, going on and you have to explain things to them um based on what you know about development and what you know about your years of experience and stuff and so and and a lot of times again therapists are scared to do that because they don't want to be offensive to parents or they don't want to discount well gosh she knows your kid better than me maybe he really is doing that no, <laughs> you know, you've know got to really be able to defend what you know about development and be able to say, Mom, if he could talk, he would talk. This is not, you know, selective mutism. I always fall back on that. You know, he's not choosing not to talk. He cannot talk. Uh, and I, do, I talk a lot about this uh, in my um, conference, and uh, there's an article on the website that if you've never gotten to read um, this article, I beg you to go read it. It's called Can't Versus Won't. And I pretty much have based my whole career <laughs> on this philosophy and on talking about it with parents and using it as my as one of the earliest conversations I have with parents. The very first time that they go there with me with saying he's he's not talking because he's stubborn or he's not talking because he's lazy or he's not talking because of all of these things, we're, we're talking about you know, if he's just saying, if we're putting it in the context of, uh, you know, listening to me and following rules and obeying, you know, I always go back to that. You know, he, it's, he can't do it. It's not that he won't do it. And really using that as a way to change the way parents think about that. Because, again, I mentioned this earlier, if we can change a parent's mind and change his focus, it's so much better for them and for the kid because they don't have – you know, all of those misconceptions about what their kid can and cannot do. And they get off the whole, he's just doing this to make me mad. And a lot of parents feel that way. And uh, I love it when I can change a parent's mind and get them to think about it in a different way. Because it does, it almost changes their relationship with their child, don't you think?
0: Yes. They begin to realize, oh, you know, <laughs> It can be difficult. I mean, it's not an easy thing to accept. Sometimes for in some ways it's easier just to think that they're difficult or strong-willed right. or spoiled right. or whatever the negative adjective is. But, right. you know, really when they do get it, they do begin to relate to them differently. And a lot of times you see the kids become more socially connected because all of a sudden somebody kind of gets them.
1: Right, exactly. And mm-hmm. I think that's why... Mm-hmm. A lot of therapists are really successful with connecting with kids initially, even when previous therapists may not have had that um, success. It's because you go in and you figure that out about a kid, and it is like a look of relief, like, finally, somebody gets me. Finally, you know, you're here with me, you're fine, you're playing with me, this is stuff I can do, I'm not in trouble. You know, they, they get that. And so we need to help parents get there and we need to explain. If a mom is saying to you, boy, he likes you a lot, he's responding better to you than any other therapist, you know, you need to tell mom why that's happening. You need to explain <laughs> those things. And, again, if she has misconceptions about her kid in other situations or other settings or other, you know, facets of development, you need to talk to her about that and get her on your page so that she's that connected with her kid and really gets them and that she can help train the other adults in that kid's life and get them on the same page too. I love it when I get to see that happen with a family, when a mom really kind of or a dad or whoever comes to that realization with Oh, my goodness! You know this is what we're dealing with here, no matter what it whether it's like you know expressive language or like or you know, receptive language or whatever. when they get it it's it's just a big relief for everybody <clears throat> and I think that's you know we change changed lives at that point, and that's again why this job never gets old. We always have something new to do like that. All right, Kate, you have any parting words? I think we'll end on that philosophical note if you don't have anything to add. No, I think I'm good. All right, well, we have wrapped up this series. Who knows what we're going to talk about next week? We're going to have to have some conversations about that, aren't we, Kate?
0: I guess Coming we up with the new I for a good email to come in. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right, thanks for joining us. Okay. All right.
0: Thanks. Bye. bye.
1: Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Melina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about
0: extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Melina. Visit
1: meetmelinaca.com. Let's talk today.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?